0: Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. It is now over 50 years since a 31-year-old Australian Anglican missionary in Papua New Guinea, William Gill, and 37 parishioners and staff made the best attested and least explained sighting of unidentified flying objects in the long history of the genre. The day before the celebrated encounter of a mystifying kind, Gill had written a letter to David DeRee, acting principal of St. Aidan's College, which trained teacher evangelists at Dogura, then the headquarters of the church in PNG. Gill, who was priest in charge at Boynai, a large village on the mountainous north coast of Milne Bay Province, about 25 kilometers west of Dogura, told DeRee of a UFO sighting by Stephen Moy, then an assistant teacher. He wrote, there have been quite a number of reports over the months from reliable witnesses. The peculiar thing about these most recent events is that the UFOs seem to be stationary at Boyanai or to travel from Boyanai. Although I think the Bynara people said they watched it travel across the sky from our direction, I should think that this is the first time that the saucer has been identified as such. I myself saw a stationary white light twice on the same night on April the 9th. The assistant district officer, Bob Smith, and Mr. Glover have seen it. I do not doubt the existence of these things, but my simple mind still requires scientific evidence before I can accept the From Outer Space Theory. I am inclined to believe that probably many UFOs are more likely some form of electric phenomenon or perhaps something brought about by the atom bomb explosions, etc. He ended the letter, Yours Doubting William. What Father Gill and his associates would see the next night, and indeed the following night as well, is something ripped straight out of a Pulp Fiction magazine of the 1930s. Despite some serious overtime put in by the usual suspects, to quote the late Stanton Friedman, nasty, noisy negativists, to this day it is one of the best documented and unexplained close encounters of the third kind on record. Make sure you stick around, this one is definitely in JT's top tier. And I'm in good company, as none other than J. Allen Hynek was just as impressed. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever the case may be, my friends, wherever you are when you hear my voice. I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you had a great week at work. The year is very quickly winding down. We're not far out now from Christmas and the other holidays. For those of you who celebrate Hanukkah, I hope that you have an amazing celebration with your family and friends and all those that you find dear. No matter what you celebrate, folks, I always have only the best wishes for you. It's been an amazing week here at Tower Studios. I've had all kinds of things going on. Unfortunately, a lot of those things I can't quite share with you yet. I've got a few lines in the water and I don't want to spook the fish away. So, I won't be revealing to you what's going on just yet, but some very exciting times ahead for the Paranormal Sun. It's really been an astoundingly gratifying and and humbling week here. I've really enjoyed myself. A lot of great people reaching out to support me, support the program, and everything else. Now on that note, before I get too far into tonight's show, I've started a new Facebook group. You would have heard me talk about it before. If you want to find the Facebook group, just basically go onto Facebook and search the Paranormal Sun Official, and you'll see a logo that says Tower Studios New Zealand, and You can go there. It is a closed group, so there are a few questions, but that is for your own benefit. It's to keep some of the Viagra peddlers and Nigerian princes out of the group. So there's just a few simple questions there. Answer those questions, and I will very quickly let you in the door. And I've been posting up quite a few little Easter eggs and exclusive news stories, things like that, in the group, just to... Just to include the community a bit more. Some of the things that are coming up, for example, I shared one of the news articles I'm going to be reading in tonight's edition of the News of the Damned there in the group today or yesterday so that people could see it, comment on it, and look forward to it. Now, aside from that, my friends, I have already released the schedule for the rest of the year, but once again, we're just going to very quickly go over it. So, first and foremost, tonight's program is about the astounding Father Gill or the Boy Nye 1959 PNG UFO case. It's definitely one of the most astounding, long-lasting, and fascinating cases in the history of ufology. It's considered one of the best cases of a close encounter of the third kind on the records. Several people here that have had very little to gain by talking about flying saucers and entities from elsewhere, I think that you will find this fascinating. This is a case that you don't often hear discussed nowadays. However, as I say, not only J. Allen Hynek, but several other top ufologists consider this a gold star case. So you definitely want to listen to this episode. Then the next episode after this will be a very special interview and a bit of an interactive episode between myself and the guest. Now, again, I'm not going to quite go into the details just yet, but I think that you will find it very interesting. It's something I haven't discussed on the program yet, but as I've told you over and over on The Paranormal Sun, I keep an open mind. I will be involved in some topics similar to this moving forward as and when the schedule permits. That is the third week of December. That's Christmas week. Then the plan is, as I say, on New Year's Eve, is to have the 2021 Prediction Show with a couple of guests We are still trying to pin down the recording date. I would say the closer we get to it, it's looking more and more like we'll probably do the recording on the 27th. I haven't had a firm commitment from one of the guests, so once I hear from him, then I'll be able to go back to the other one and try and line it all up. Folks, rest assured, even if the guests can't appear, if worst comes to worst, then I will be your solo host. Don't worry, I've got split personalities, so that should <laughs> that should make for a bit of fun. I may even break out the tinfoil hat for you to have a good laugh at. We'll just see. So in that 2021 prediction show, I'll be reading predictions from you, the listeners, and you can send those through on the social media links. You can also email them to tpspredictions at gmail.com. So TPS for The Paranormal Sun predictions at gmail.com. You can each make up to three predictions. The only thing I ask, as I say, is no assassinations. Again, to top off this wondrous year of 2020, I really don't need to get a visit from any intelligence agencies. And that will be the wrap-up for the rest of 2020. As we roll into 2021, I can tell you the show is just picking up momentum like you wouldn't believe. I've got some real astounding surprises for you coming up in the new year, and again, I'm sorry, I don't mean to play the almighty drama queen and constantly be waving a flag in front of your face, but I just don't want to jinx any of the wonderful content I have on the on the future cards, so to speak, so I'll just be keeping hush-hush about that for now. As I say, you can support the show in several ways. You can like and subscribe to the program on your podcast listening platform of choice, You can give reviews, those of you who use things like Apple iTunes. And why is that important? Well, it's important because when people search for things like paranormal, unexplained UFOs, the more likes and higher rating that the show has, it will come up closer in the search rating. So it will come up in the first few pages. So definitely go there and you can like and subscribe to the show for those of you who haven't. You can head over to theparanormalsun.com. Now, over there, I've got a blog where I will post up different things and a lot of other things. All the shows are there. There's the Paranormal Sun and the Fortunate Sun merchandise there. If you're interested in anything there, if you want to show your support for the show and have that item that is just different that no one else has, by all means, you can go and find it there. You can also support the show financially if you so please by you can throw a few dollars in the PayPal link there on the Paranormal Sun. You can also support the show on Patreon. I have set up a Patreon account, basically, because that's what so many others do. But probably the best way for you and I both is just to use that PayPal link, because you can donate as and when you see fit, and also PayPal takes less fees out of it than Patreon does. We will see going forward in 2021. I may just scupper the Patreon account in total, but I'm undecided at this point. The other thing you can do on the theparanormalsun.com is there's a little coffee icon next to my picture, and there you can go and donate a coffee to me. So you can send me a coffee to keep the caffeine flowing through my veins as I'm in the studio late at night oftentimes, and it's definitely a plus. I have had some people reach out to me as well and say, look, JT, if we want to send you things, where can we send them to? Well, at this point, I don't have a post office box or anything set up. I am exploring that option, potentially. One of the things that I'm always very cognizant of, I love listeners wanting to support the show and support me personally, but I also realize that postage is very expensive to New Zealand, unless you live here, or Australia, but especially shipping from the US and Europe, it's very prohibitive cost-wise. However, I am mulling over opening a post box so that you could send things to me, especially things like books and DVDs, things like that you might want me to consume for the show and maybe cover over. So we'll just look into that. Again, it's something on the radar for 2021. No decisions have been made on it just yet. As always, my friends, I appreciate everyone who listens to my voice. I hope that you really liked that Hangar 18 Attacks episode. I poured a lot of heart and soul into it. Lots of little tweaks and Easter eggs that I hope you enjoyed. I really wanted my first interview To be something special for you as the listener, as well as for the awesome guest that I had, Russ from Hangar 18 Radio. Russ is a very like minded person to myself. He's interested in a lot of the same topics, and he's been one of the show's biggest backers and supporters. So it was an honor to me to have him on the program as my first guest. When I first started The Fortunate Son back in May, I honestly didn't think I would ever end up having guests on. So to be able to have on people, especially people who I consider friends, it's really an honor to have some of these people on. Now, to you, the listeners all over the world, thank you so much. I've got listeners from all over the world right now, my friends. I've had some listens in Japan, I've had listens in Rwanda, I've had listens in Israel, Russia, obviously all of the heavier markets like the U.S., the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, France. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to everyone who listens to the show. And as I say, if there's ever an interesting topic you'd like me to cover over, let me know. You can email me at theparanormalsun@gmail.com at gmail.com if there's something you'd like me to cover. And I do have several field correspondents, I always call them, that are very good at sending me stories and keeping me abreast of some of the developments. And honestly, when I get my head down in the studio at times, especially trying to do things like schedule comments and posts on social media... It can be quite difficult to pay attention to what's going on. So thank you to those correspondents, Adrian and Nico in Texas, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, and Nate in Pennsylvania. Thank you all for sharing your stories. And there are others. There's Jeff in Wisconsin as well. Sorry, Jeff, I didn't mean to forget you. Thank you all for taking the time to send me those things. It really means the world to me, and it's a big help. You as the listener, pat yourself on the back. Thank you for supporting the show. I couldn't do it without you. Now I do have a few special shout outs tonight. As I say, Hanger eighteen radio. Russ, I just wanted to again thank you so much for coming on the show. Fascinating conversation, and I will have you back many times. We've discussed this and I will definitely enjoy having you back on the show anytime. Alan at spooky CG Podcast. Now Alan is a very good supporter of the program and Alan has got a little bit of a different type of podcast. Alan is an amazing artist. He draws all of the pictures for his stories. He writes his stories, and then he reads them for you on the air. So he does these scary stories, and it's called Spooky CG Podcast. So the CG stands for Coffee and Ghosts. Uh, Alan's first language is not English, And he does his best, and I think that he's done an amazing job. He's trying to balance a job, as so many other podcasters are, with doing the program. And as I say, everything he does on the show, it's all done by him. So, Alan, you're a very creative individual, and I tip my cap to you, sir, that you go out of your way to do this for the listeners. And Casey Ruff, thank you so much for the review on iTunes. It's really appreciated. I don't have a massive amount of them, and all of them that I get definitely help. So thank you so much. So just a quick wrap-up, folks. As I say, you can follow The Paranormal Sun on Instagram. You can find The Paranormal Sun Facebook group. You can follow The Paranormal Sun on Twitter, on TikTok, on YouTube, and also on a platform called On Stellar, which is a bit of an alternative platform that was kind of built and based around things like UFOs and the like. Now, as I say, it's a bit more like MySpace than Facebook, but if you are on that platform and you want to add the Paranormal Sun, by all means, head over there and add the Paranormal Sun. So with all of that having been said, my friends, as always, thank you so much. And now we're going to get into the news of the damned. So for those of you who may be new to the program, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was one of the first people in the field of the paranormal and the unexplained to start gathering things like newspaper clippings, magazine and periodical stories, and also firsthand accounts, and collating them into something that we could start to put together as a database and understand, or try to understand what's going on. At least see patterns, at least have a bit of understanding. And Charles Fort is famous for covering everything from strange things falling from the sky, like fish, stones, purple, red, yellow, black hail, all of these sorts of things. Also UFOs, sea serpents, ghost ships, all kinds of things. Well, Charles Fort referred to any information that was excluded or ignored by science as damned data. Therefore, as an homage to Charles Fort, this segment is always titled The News of the Damned. The first article, folks, is a bit of breaking news. Now I was actually sitting down watching the six o'clock news this evening, which is pretty rare for me. I don't really watch the news much anymore with all the doom and gloom. But when I saw this come across I went, Wow, okay, uh yeah, that's definitely interesting, and it definitely fits in line with the program. So this comes from theguardian.com and this article is titled Zodiac Cipher from California Serial Killer solved after 51 years. Message from still-unidentified killer reads, I hope you were having lots of fun and trying to catch me. It took 51 years and a team of experts from three countries to crack the code to a cipher left by the still-unidentified Zodiac killer who haunted Northern California communities in the 60s and 70s. But on Friday, the codebreaker David Orinchok revealed for the first time the ominous message sent by the murderer. I hope you are having lots of fun trying to catch me. The message sent to the San Francisco Chronicle in November 1969 in a series of symbols reads, I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me. The FBI confirmed that the news of the crack code is the real deal, but said it does little to help investigators in the decades-long search for the serial killer. The Zodiac Killer terrorized multiple communities across Northern California, and even though decades have gone by, we continue to seek justice for the victims of these brutal crimes, the FBI spokeswoman Cameron Poland, said in the statement given to the San Francisco Chronicle, which broke the story. Poland added that the Zodiac Killer case remains an ongoing investigation for the San Francisco Division. Due to the ongoing nature of the investigation, and out of respect for the victims and their families, We will not be providing further comment at this time, she said. This is the second Zodiac cipher that has been cracked. The first was solved quickly by a local couple. Much like the code exposed today, the first served only to terrify and provoke. It revealed little about who the killer was, only the heinous reason behind the spree. I like killing, the code read, because it is so much fun. The Zodiac killer is officially tied to five murders in the Bay Area, that occurred in 1968 and 1969. Two additional victims escaped, and many more crimes are believed to have been committed by the person who claimed responsibility for 37 deaths. The killer, believed to be a white man, began contacting newspapers in 1969 and phoning the police, identifying himself only as Zodiac. He often sought publicity for his grisly crimes, threatening newspapers with additional murders if they refused to print his ciphers. There were four codes total, one in which the killer said his identity would be revealed. Though several theories have been floated through the years on Zodiac's identity, he has evaded detection by authorities across five decades. So I really haven't got into the whole true crime, serial killers, and everything else on this program for various reasons. First and foremost, folks, if you go outside for a walk, you'll likely stumble across a true crime podcast. There's nothing wrong with it, I'm just saying that it seems to be one of the more prevalent genres in the podcasting community, so there's little reason for me to hash over these same topics. I've got hundreds and hundreds of show topics to go over, so I'm not really going to get into the serial killer stuff too much. There are a few things I'll touch on. Like I said, I've got some personal stories about a few of them, and in time I will release those. There are a few angles I've thought about covering, but it's not front and center on the radar. But nonetheless, this is a fascinating case. I remember hearing about this when I was young. At that time, the Zodiac Killer and the Son of Sam Killer, those were both really big stories, and a lot of people were looking into it, since these murders had been in the fairly recent past at the time. So yes, very interesting story, that one. Now, here's a very interesting one for you. Now, this one was given to me by Eric Freeman Sims. Now, Eric has his own podcast called Unseen Paranormal, and he's been very supportive of the program, And he posted this up in his Facebook group that I'm a member of, so I said to him, thank you very much, and I would make sure to give him credit as I was due. Now, this one comes from Mysterious Universe. You've heard me read some of these articles before. This one is very interesting. This one is, Bride-to-be claims she was forced to sell her haunted wedding dress. Now, this was written by Paul Seaburn, and it came out on December the 11th. There are plenty of tales of haunted clothing usually belonging to a person who died under strange or violent circumstances. There are plenty of brides who get eerie feelings when they look at their wedding gowns. Different eerie feelings, depending on whether it's before or after the wedding, but eerie nonetheless. However, it's rare to hear a story about a haunted wedding gown. In this case, it belongs to a bride-to-be who obtained it under mysterious circumstances, has been experiencing spooky events ever since, and would like nothing more than to get rid of it and buy a non-haunted gown. In one of the rundown remnants of a small cottage we shimmied up into, I came across this dress. It was so gorgeous, I froze at the sight of it. And, if I'm being completely honest, it scared the crap out of me all at the same time. But something about its earthy beauty just begged me to bring it home with me. This tale appeared on the 7news.com.au website in Australia, which unfortunately does not include any names, locations, or links. Their sole source seems to be a Facebook post, but searches for variations of haunted wedding gown came up empty what 7news.com.au relates is that the woman lives in the us and was hiking with her fiance through a small town between fairfax and carbonado in western washington state when they came upon an abandoned gold rush town oddly this bride to be found and absconded with a wedding gown that was certainly not as old as the town or cabin or was it after a week of having the dress we noticed my cat beginning to hide underneath the bed almost all day when she normally spent the day on us or on her designated windowsill. Then things started moving around the house. First small things like socks and my closet door being open in the morning, when I specifically remember closing it before bed. Then my cat's food tray would get thrown at such velocity it would knock things off of the shelf, hung on the wall at strikes. This happened relentlessly. The fraidy cat isn't that unusual, but the moved items and flying food trays suggest poltergeist. And then came the smell of rotten eggs and fire that would fill our bedroom, night after night. Then flies started to pile up against my back window and swarm around my front door. Let's stop for a moment here. We have no idea where the woman is now. A location could give a possible explanation for the rotten egg smell, and especially the fire smell, if she's near the recent wildfires, or what date or season it is, which could explain the dead flies. The 7news.com.au indicates she had by now concluded that the dress was possessed or haunted because she tried to bless the dress and the rest of her house, but surprisingly not the cat, with holy water, which she claimed just made things worse. Doors slamming, lights turning on and off, candles being blown out in still air, footsteps all over my apartment, and heavy anguished sighs so close to my ears, I could feel the breath of whoever it came from. Again, it appears 7news.com.au got this from the woman's Facebook post, which we'll get to in a minute. At this point, she claimed she still hadn't linked the strange occurrences to the dress, so she gave it to her mother-in-law-to-be for alterations. She never got it dry-cleaned and begged me not to get married in the dress because of the energy surrounding it, and I hadn't even told her about what was going on at home, because up until that point, I hadn't even connected the two. Let's see, bride-to-be finds beautiful wedding gown in a ghost town and thinks nothing of taking it rather than trying to find the rightful owner. Did a ghost put it there for her to find it? or is she just inconsiderate? Once she decides it's haunted, she tells the story on Facebook and offers to sell the dress for $1,200, then drop the price to $600. Comments on the Facebook page related by 7news.com.au range from the believers telling her to burn it, to the disgusted who accuse her of stealing the gown, and then selling it for profit instead of finding the owner. What do you think? With the complete lack of names, locations, details, paranormal investigations, photos other than one of the beautiful dress, or videos, the needle on this haunted wedding dress story is wavering between skeptical and campfire tale. Well folks, as the old saying goes, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Now this next article I was asked to cover by a friend of the show and a fan in Ireland, so Angela, thank you very much. And in the background, my friends, I have got a bit of theme music you can't hear, I had to listen to The Emerald from Thin Lizzy. If you don't know the song, look it up. So this one is from Irish Mirror. And this one is titled, Locals and Carlo report hearing two mighty bangs late at night as they search for answers. Now, this was in July, but my understanding is some of this has happened also in recent days. Some people are questioning if Carlo is seeing UFOs. And this is from Cormac O'Shea. And it was released, as I say, 8th of July, 2020. Locals in Carlo are searching for answers after hearing two mighty bangs late on Tuesday night. Many people were awoken by the noises shortly after midnight, but can't find an explanation as to what they were. The bangs were reported on both sides of Carlo between 1230 and 1 a.m. Droves of people were in contact with local radio station KCLR 96 FM who are asking if there are UFOs in the area. One caller told KCLR live, I'm in Rossmore View in Greg Cullen. It was two mighty big explosions. I wouldn't say rock the house, but oh my gosh, they were so loud. So much so that I thought we- they were in my area. More and more people also claim to have been woken up by the loud noise around the county, with no one having an explanation as to what the sound was. One social media user said the noise woke up the whole house, while another said her dog was given a big fright. So it's a bit of a short one there, my friends, but uh, we've all heard of these mystery booms and noises around the world. There's another example for you in Carlo in Ireland. I've also heard quite a bit of rumors and conjectures going around about UFO sightings there. So I'm going to dig into that and try and see what I can find out for the next episode. Now, the next one here is also from mysteriousuniverse.org. And this one is from Paul Seaburn. Very interesting article chupacabras in Russia, the number of reports is increasing. Here we go again. Farmers in western Russia have been reporting the mysterious deaths of large numbers of their chicken and rabbits, which were killed in a brutal manner that makes them fear a chupacabra rather than dogs, ferrets, coyotes, or other creatures. Yes, Russia is a long way from Puerto Rico or Texas, but the reputation of the chupacabra may be spreading by both word of mouth and mouth on chickens and rabbits. Were they drained of their blood? The killings, how else to call it, of domestic animals occurred a week earlier. At least four cases are known. The most interesting thing is that the unknown creature does not eat the carcasses of animals and birds. Of all the injuries on the bodies of rabbits and chickens, two stab wounds on the neck, like a mark from a vampire's teeth. Google translations of the Russian media site marpravda.ru cause some confusion. But in November 2020, there was at least one and possibly more mysterious killings of barnyard livestock reported in the village of Alexivisky, district of Mariel. The unknown predator entered the lock pen by pushing through a wall, then killed 13 of 15 rabbits and left them in pools of blood, not exactly the signature of a bloodsucker. However, the Russian report brings up the chupacabra, which was also suspected of a similar rash of livestock killings in the area in 2015. I want to warn all residents of Udmurtia that the Chupacabra has appeared. In the village of Malaya Venya, all poultry and rabbits and several houses were destroyed in one week. Ours were locked up in the corral, and the next morning they also died, like those of our neighbors. The message of a local resident says, The woman asked the head of the region to take the problem seriously. I still don't understand who the Chupacabra was, but in the fact they asked a lot, so I'm informing you. Lenta.ru reports the warnings of Alexander Brechelov, head of the region, after what appears to be other killings of rabbits and chickens in the same general area. Again, he refers to the chupacabra, which was suspected in similar killings in the region in June 2020 and September 2019. A report shows the gruesome killing of an unidentified, aggressive, bloodthirsty animal with red eyes and fangs. Again, the chupacabra is named as a probable cause in rural areas of Russia. It is not the first time that the mythological animal has been evoked in the Russian countryside. It is true that the legend belongs to the American tradition. But since 2009 in Ukraine, a strange finding of a dead animal has made many scream at the discovery of the chupacabra. Rural areas of Russia have begun to talk about herds of these creatures, so much so that the chronicles of local newspapers often write of dead livestock with farmers pointing the finger at the chupacabra. According to Italia Ogi, the chupacabra stories in Russia date back to an incident in 2009 in Ukraine. It refers to the 2015 incident and suggests those killings were by a ferret. A marprovda.ru report on that incident says the police think it was a lynx. None of the reports on the latest killing of rabbits and chickens refer to any cause by the chupacabra. Has the Puerto Rican goat sucker or its less deadly dog-like Texas cousin expanded their territory to Russia? An obvious question would be why? There's definitely plenty of rural areas in Russia, but even thirsty goat suckers prefer the warmer climes of the Caribbean and Texas. Could this be Russia's own Chupacabra? Like the Yeti is Russia's Bigfoot. That's the possibility we're setting up motion detection cameras to capture. Most likely it's the plentiful wild carnivores that have easy pickings among the small farms of Russia rather than the agri-giants of the U.S. Then again, a Russian Chupacabra would be a fun cryptid to add to the list and give cryptozoologists a reason to book a trip when the pandemic is over. So yeah, folks, very interesting one. And again, with so many of these different cryptids, it is interesting that they seem to at least be accused of spreading as time goes on in different places around the world. Now, here's one from one of my favorite websites for strange and odd news. For those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you would know this. So this one comes from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is titled, Mystery Creature Blamed for Spate of Strange Deaths Near Bridge in Zimbabwe. And this is from Tim Benal. In a strange story out of Zimbabwe, a series of strange deaths near a bridge have been attributed to a mystery creature that some suspect could be a mermaid, according to a local media report. The weirdness surrounding the Mishabesi Bridge in the town of Gwanda began back in the 1970s, when several students died under unusual circumstances in the river which runs under the overpass, apparently something of an ominous local legend since then. The site has sparked renewed interest in recent weeks following the inexplicable drowning deaths of multiple men in the community. While these incidents alone are cause for concern among residents, what makes the case particularly odd is that it is believed by people living in the town that all of these deaths are due to some kind of supernatural creature that resides in the river. Specifically, some suspect that the aquatic killer is a mermaid while others argue that this is not the case because the bodies of the victims have been retrieved. How exactly that fact absolves mermaids is presumably a matter of local folklore. Be that as it may, residents of Guanda are tired of being terrorized by whatever force is causing people to die at the bridge and have enlisted a religious figure named Prophet Moyo to help eradicate the creature. Whatever is in the water could be luring people there in order to take lives, he mused. If it's an act of witchcraft, It could be the doing of an evil person who planted something in the water in order to gain wealth in exchange for human lives. Lamenting that this mystery has never been investigated thoroughly, he expressed optimism that the matter will be resolved once he visits the river and determines whether or not the deaths are being caused by witchcraft. Lest one doubt Moyo's abilities, this is not the first encounter with an unusual entity menacing a community, as he was previously enlisted to eradicate goblins that were living in a schoolyard and successfully sent the creatures packing, never to be seen again. Hopefully he can work some similar magic at the Mitsubizi Bridge. So that's a very interesting article. Now, Jeremy Wade, who is the guy who does river monsters and those type of shows on the Discovery Channel, he I've seen a few of his episodes where he's in Africa, and the fishermen definitely have some superstitions, and many of them believe that these fish in the rivers and lakes are the devil or evil demons or mermaids. So of all the places, I'm not surprised that this is cropped up in Zimbabwe. But we shall see. We, we shall see if the year 2020 brings us a mermaid before the end of the year. Wouldn't that be an interesting twist? Now, folks, we've got the last one here for the News of the Dam for this episode. And this is another one from MysteriousUniverse.org and this is from a very well-known author in the fields that we cover, which is Nick Redfern. Now, this is titled December 2020, When Two Famous UFO Anniversaries Collide. I already know what one of them is. When shortly after 9 p.m. on the night of December the 29th, 1980, Vicky Landrum, her grandson Colby, and Betty Cash exited the restaurant where they had just eaten a fine Texan dinner, they couldn't imagine what was just around the corner. As they headed back towards the town of Huffman, Texas, they were terrified by the sudden sight of an unknown object in the sky, so this will be the Cashlandrum event. Worse, it was descending on a flight path guaranteed to in- ensure it landed on the road they were on. As they got closer, they could see the aerial thing appeared to be in flames and shaped not unlike a diamond. It reached a perilously low level of around 25 feet, something which ensured a screeching of brakes and the car brought to a shuddering standstill. The interior temperature of the car suddenly reached intolerable levels. The three jumped out of the vehicle and could only stare in awe and fear. Then out of the blue, another two dozen double-rotor helicopters were on the scene, clearly intent on corralling the UFO. Or perhaps they were escorting it. Kesh was sure that they were Boeing CH-47 Chinooks. They watched as both the UFO and the helicopters left the area and were finally lost from sight. Within days, all three fell sick nausea and vomiting were at the forefront betty cash was the one affected most of all which may be explainable by the fact that she was the one member of the group who got closest to the object her hair started to fall out her skin was covered with pustules and blisters and the nausea got worse despite attempts to force the u.s government to come clean on what went down there was nothing but denial after denial from the authorities the case is a puzzling one with some UFO researchers believing the three encountered a real UFO, while others suspect they were unfortunate enough to cross paths with the top-secret, nuclear-powered, prototype aircraft that was in deep trouble and that had to be retrieved as quickly as possible. Interestingly, this was the same time frame that things were going down in Rendlesham Forest, England. An official U.S. Air Force document, dated January 13, 1981, states in part, Early in the morning of 27 December 1980, approximately 0300L, two U.S. Air Force Security Police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the back gate at RAF Woodbridge. Thinking an aircraft might have crashed or been forced down, they called for permission to go outside the gate to investigate. The on-duty flight chief responded and allowed three patrolmen to proceed on foot. The individuals reported seeing a strange glowing object in the forest. The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape. Approximately two to three meters across the base and approximately two meters high. It illuminated the entire forest with a white light. The object itself had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs. As the patrolman approached the object, it maneuvered through the trees and disappeared. At the time, the animals on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. The object was was briefly sighted approximately an hour later near the back gate. Also of interest is the following. As Captain John E. Boyle of the U.S. Air Force informed me in 1988, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the 67th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron, stationed at RAF Woodbridge, provided standby rescue coverage for the American space flights. Of course, they were never needed to provide emergency rescue actions but at this time the unit was trained and available to rescue astronauts with their HH-53 and HC-130 aircraft. In early 1988, the 67th ARRS was redesignated as part of the 39th Special Operations Wing, their primary mission changing from that of rescue to supporting U.S. Special Operations forces. Their secondary mission remains that of search and rescue, and they would provide any assistance necessary in future space missions. It should be noted that RAF Woodbridge stood right next to Rendlesham Forest. Could there have been a connection between the events in Texas and those in the UK? If nothing else, it's an issue worth looking into, and particularly so with the 40th anniversary just a few weeks away. Well, folks, if I would have had the time and I would have known, I would have covered Rendlesham Forest for its 40th anniversary, but I'll get to it at some point. It's another fascinating case. It's one of the best documented as far as military personnel spotting UFO cases, and it's one of those that so many people know about or have heard about. Now, I was first made privy to Rendlesham Forest in the 80s when I watched Unsolved Mysteries as a young boy, and it's one of those cases that I never forgot their dramatization of it, and it was definitely one of those that made me wonder what the hell was going on with the UFO phenomenon. I did cover a little bit about Rendlesham, in the High Brazil episode. So I just talked about a little bit of what happened at Rendlesham Forest in 1980. It's definitely one of those cases. If you haven't heard of it, you'll definitely want to know more. So my friends, that's the news of the dam for this week. No monolith articles. I'll probably try to, if I can, get out another separate news segment with monolith stuff in it. It's just, yeah, it's just getting to be a bit overwhelming, my friends, with everything else on. I could Basically, focus on monoliths only, and that would chew up most of my time. Again, for those of you who may not know, there are links to all of these articles in the show notes. So if you'd like to check out these articles and read a bit more yourself, by all means, head over there, click on the link, and it will take you to the article I read for you tonight. And now, my friends, get yourself a nice adult beverage. Get yourself settled and comfy wherever you are. It's about time that we're going to move through time and space. Back to 1959, and the fascinating and mysterious country of Papua New Guinea. The day after he sent the letter that I read in part during the intro, Father Gill wrote again, Dear David, life is strange, isn't it? Yesterday I wrote you a letter expressing concerns regarding the UFOs. Now, less than 24 hours later, I have changed my views somewhat. Last night we at Boy and I experienced about four hours of UFO activity, and there is no doubt whatsoever that they are handled by beings of some kind. At times it was absolutely breathtaking. Here is the report. Cheers. Convinced Bill. P.S. Do you think Port Moresby should know about this? If people think it worthwhile, I will stand the cost of a radio conversation if you care to make out a comprehensive report from the material on my behalf. What had Gill and his parishioners seen that completely changed his perspective on the matter? On April 5, 1959, at the Anglican Mission Village at Boi Papua New Guinea, One of the most well-documented cases of alien visitation began. The Anglican Church had sent Father William Booth Gill to lead the mission. He would be the main subject of an amazing series of UFO sightings with alien beings. On that night, Gill saw a bright light on the uninhabited Mount Putty. This light, Gill stated, moved faster than anything he had ever seen. During the summer of 1959, Gill's assistant, Stephen Moy, reported to him that he had observed an inverted saucer-shaped object which was hovering above the mission gill thought nothing of it at the time on the 26th of june father gill again saw a bright light to his northwest evidently rumors of the previous sighting by Moy had spread among the villagers and soon they were beside gill watching the lights above the notes he made following his encounter describe a bright white light appearing in the northwestern sky approaching the mission station then hovering about 100 meters in the air Sworn statements of this event listed 38 individual witnesses who saw a disc-shaped UFO the size of 5 full moons strung together the UFO had four legs like landing gear but was high up in the sky an enormous object was hovering over the mission soon four beings similar in appearance to humans emerged from the object they seemed to be working on something on their ship the beings would go inside the object and then soon return as if fetching tools at regular intervals a blue light shone up above the ufo there also appeared to be about four panels or portholes on the side of the object which seemed to glow a little brighter than the rest of the ship clouds which were at about 600 meters then eventually obscured the vessel as it drifted higher this craft was visible for about 45 minutes vanishing at 7:30 pm this first sighting occurred over the sea according to reverend gill and it seemed to be about 150 meters above the water at all times. The main UFO was clearly visible and seemed mostly stationary during the observation. Forty-five minutes later, many of the witnesses remained, still pondering the sight they had seen. Soon, several objects smaller than the previous UFO appeared in the sky. About twenty minutes afterward, the first UFO was back in view. The sighting of the larger UFO would last for four hours, as witnesses would come and go. Twenty-five witnesses signed their testimony to the sighting. A heavy cloud cover ended the event. Later that night, twenty-five of the thirty-eight witnesses to the incident, including Reverend Gill himself, drew pictures of their sightings and signed an agreement on the sequence of events. Far from professional works of art, the drawings nevertheless agreed in the presentation of the general, circular, two-tiered shape of the object. The presence of humanoids and leg like appendages on the craft, and an upward directed beam of light. They differed, however, in their interpretation of lighter patches of light along the side of the mothership, generally presenting them as portholes, or in Reverend Gill's case, slightly lighter panels, and in the proportions of height to length in diameter. On the morning of the twenty seventh of June, Gill wrote his letter to Dury. That evening, incredibly, the visitation returned in an extraordinary manner it was first sighted at 602 p.m. as the sun was setting two of the smaller objects flanked it father gill with many of the witnesses from the night before watched the unbelievable sight gill later said possibly the same object that i took to be the mothership last night two smaller ufo's were seen at the same time stationary on the large one two of the figures seemed to be doing something near the center of the deck said father gill they were occasionally bending over and raising their arms as though adjusting or setting up something that wasn't visible to us one figure seemed to be standing looking down at us two smaller ufo's were seen at the same time stationary one above the hills to the west another overhead gill's account also states we watched the figures appear on top four of them no doubt that they are humans gill then waved at one of the creatures to our surprise the figure did the same Ananias waved both arms over his head, then the two outside figures did the same. Ananias and I began waving our arms, and all four seemed to wave back. There seemed no doubt that our movements were answered. All mission boys made audible gasps of either surprise or joy, or perhaps both. As dark was beginning to close in, I sent Eric Kodawara for a torch, that's a flashlight for those of you in the U.S., and directed a series of long dashes towards the UFO. After a minute or two of this, the UFO apparently acknowledged by making several wavering motions back and forth. Waving by us was repeated, and this followed by more flashes of the torch. Then the UFO began slowly to become bigger, apparently coming in our direction. It ceased after perhaps half a minute and came no further. After a further two or three minutes, the figures apparently lost interest in us, for they disappeared below deck. At 6.25 p.m., two figures reappeared to carry on whatever they were doing before the interruption. The blue spotlight came on for a few seconds, twice in succession. Gil has described how he and the mission people called out to the men, even shouting at them and beckoning them to descend. But there was no response beyond what has already been noted. The situation remained unchanged, so Gil returned to his regular routine and went to have his dinner at 6:30. By 7 p.m., the main object had moved slightly away, and the observers went into the village church for evening song as usual. By the time they reemerged at 7.45 p.m., visibility had become very limited, with the sky covered in cloud. At 10.40 p.m., Gill wrote, An ear-splitting explosion woke up the mission station inhabitants. Gill said it did not feel like a thunderclap. Going outside to see what had happened, he spied four UFOs in a circle around the building. These forecraft were extremely high in the sky. The roof was checked for damage the next morning, but none was found. Later, Gill said he was always asked why he had reverted to his usual routine when there was a flying saucer apparently hovering overhead. Having had about four hours of this sight on Friday night, we were not nearly so interested when it returned on Saturday night, especially after we were unable to persuade it to land. This was also partly because, he said, There was nothing eerie or otherworldly about any of this. It was all so ordinary, as ordinary as a Ford car. The object has since been estimated at being about 40 feet across, or 12 meters. It looked a perfectly normal sort of object, an earth-made object. I realized, of course, that some people might think of this as a flying saucer, but I took it to be some kind of hovercraft the Americans, or even the Australians, had built. The figures inside looked perfectly human. In fact, I thought they were human, that if we got them to land, we would find the pilots to be ordinary Earthmen in military uniforms, and we would have dinner with them. This point is rendered mute by the fact that there were some observers left to call Gill should anything interesting occur. This series of alien contacts in Papua seems like something from a science fiction movie. However, the reputation of Father Gill cannot be overlooked, and there is no reason to think that he and the other witnesses were lying or hallucinating. It is worth noting that this was one of 60 UFO sightings within a few weeks in the New Guinea area. Other less compelling activity occurred the following night. Then it seemed the I visitants had gone, but the controversy had only just begun. Well, that's a great story, isn't it, folks? Some lights in the sky? A purported disk with waving crew members? Interesting, but this was in PNG, a country where headhunting and cannibalism still occurred at the time, albeit infrequently. But wait, there's more, and oh, so much more to this case than any simple explanation will allow for. Stories appeared in the papers back in Australia in August, causing a sensation. At the time, Father Gill's UFO story was taken very seriously. Questions were raised in the Australian Parliament, and the RAAF launched a formal investigation. Gill's report caused quite a commotion at the time, when PNG was an Australian colony. On the 24th of November 1959, a Liberal Federal MP from Western Australia, E.D. Cash, asked the then Air Minister, F.M. Osborne, if the government had investigated the sightings in Papua. Osborne's response was that they were still waiting for more evidence before making an official report. The minister's reply did not address this question, but instead focused on the general situation. In his words, most sightings of UFOs are explained and only a very small percentage, something like 3% of reported sightings of flying objects, cannot be explained. The RAAF finally interviewed Father Gill on December 29, 1959, some six months after the sightings. Gill related that the interview consisted of two officers who talked about stars and planets, and then left. He heard no more from the two. As one might expect, Gill's account was dismissed by the RAAF, despite its extraordinary nature and the number of witnesses. The senior interviewing officer, Squadron Leader F.A. Lang, concluded, Although the Reverend Gill could be regarded as a reliable observer, it is felt that the June-July incidents could have been nothing more than natural phenomena, colored by past events and subconscious influences of UFO enthusiasts. During the period of the report, the weather was cloudy and unsettled with light thunderstorm. Although it is not possible to draw firm conclusions, An analysis of rough bearings and angles above the horizon does suggest that at least some of the lights observed were the planets Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. Light refraction, the changing position of the planet relative to the observer, and cloud movement would give the impression of size and rapid movement. In addition, varying cloud densities could account for the human shapes and their sudden appearance and disappearance. Sadly, there are many people who will point to this, and similarly ridiculous explanations, to say, Aha! Case closed! Can you hear my eye roll from here, folks? Among those most intensely interested in the sightings was Englishman Norman Crutwell, an outstanding exemplar of the long tradition of priest-botanists, who discovered and named, after his mother Christian, a rhododendron in PNG, and had an orchid named after him in tribute. Gill wrote to Crutwell, who was also running a parish in northern Milne Bay, Here is a lot of material, the kind you have been waiting for, no doubt. I am in some ways sorry that it has to be me who supplies it. Attitudes at Dogara in respect to my sanity vary greatly, and like all madmen, I myself think my grey cells are okay. Crutwell eventually wrote a paper on the Gill sightings, and 64 other sightings that occurred in the region in 1959. What about civilian researchers? Reverend Gill was at the time of his sightings already scheduled to return to Australia. This presented civilian groups with an excellent opportunity to assess the credibility of the reports. All investigators found Gill to be very impressive. This led one of the leading civilian groups, the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society, to view the Gill reports as constituting the most remarkable testimony of intensive UFO activity ever reported to civilian investigators. They were unique because of the first time credible witness had reported the presence of humanoid beings associated with UFOs. The major civilian groups of the day, in a spirit of newfound cooperation, inspired by the significance of the Boy Nye observations, distributed copy of Gill's sighting report to all members of the House of Representatives of Australia's federal parliament. A letter accompanied the report, signed by the presidents of the participating civilian UFO groups. This letter urged members of Parliament to press the Minister for Air for a statement about the attitude Air Force intelligence had to the New Guinea reports. We have already heard their expert opinion, merely planets out for a midnight stroll a few hundred feet above the mission. Veteran UFO expert Dr. J. Allen Hynek and staff at his Center for UFO Studies went to great lengths to investigate and research the affair, thoroughly investigating the Papua events, and concluded that they were genuine. No alternate explanation has been offered to explain what happened, except perhaps to say that UFOs and alien beings visited Papua in 1959. Heineck and Alan Hendry, the center's chief investigator, concluded the lesser UFOs seen by Gill were attributable to bright stars and planets, but not the primary object. Its size and absence of movement over three hours ruled out an astronomical explanation. In 1973, J. Alan Heineck visited Australia and Papua New Guinea and found six of the witnesses to the Nye events. They all supported Gill's version of what had happened. And for those of you scoring at home, Heineck's strangeness rating was a 5, and his probability rating was an 8. Gill was educated at Trinity Grammar School in Melbourne, then studied theology at St. Francis College, Brisbane, and education at the University of Queensland. He was ordained as a priest in 1950, then worked in PNG in parish work, and as a teacher and education administrator. In Port Moresby, he also did some radio broadcasting. After returning from PNG, he taught at Essendon Grammar, Camberwell Grammar, and St. Michael's Grammar, all in Melbourne, and undertook sociological research at La Trobe University. He died at age 79 in 2007. Gill appears an exceptionally unlikely figure to have been readily caught up in the flying saucer craze at its most intense point in the 1950s. Few phenomena would have appeared more remote to high church Anglican missionaries In PNG, many with considerable educational attainments. Over the years, there have been a number of explanations put forward to account for the Boyanai sightings, including astronomical misidentification, hoax, cargo cult effects, and others. Philip J. Class, in 1974, suggested that his report on the sightings was an attempt by Gill to please the director of another Anglican mission at Menopi, Rev. Norman E. G. Crutwell. Who was interested in the UFO phenomenon? Class subtly used Crutwell's own words to intimate that the Papuan natives, in turn, signed the witness statement to please Gill without fully understanding what they were signing, and found it suspect that Crutwell had offered no explanation for the 13 who failed to sign the statement. The noted UFO debunker, Dr. Donald H. Menzel, offered his explanation thus He claimed that Father Gill, who suffered from myopia or nearsightedness, had probably not been wearing his corrective lenses, and misidentified the planet Venus, which was prevalent in the evening skies during this period. Well, folks, there we go, poor Venus getting slandered yet again. This was not true. Gil was wearing his glasses, and in either event, what about the other witnesses to the event? Menzel also asserted that the Papuans were ignorant, native people who worshipped Gil, and believed anything he told them. This was a surefire way to debunk the 30-plus witnesses, None of these satisfactorily addresses the evidence. Menzel condescendingly argued that Papuan natives, conditioned to miracles and the like, signed a document that they didn't understand in order to please their great white leader, their holy man, Reverend Gill. The differences evident in the drawings between Gill and Moy were further evidence of their myopia as far as Menzel was concerned. If you think this is an example of blatant racism, it is. More on that later, folks. Gill replied to these accusations in 1977. Norman Crutwell was Gill's colleague and held no authority to instruct Gill. Moreover, the Popowans were bilingual in English and Wedau. Twelve of the twenty-five who signed were adults, and all knew what they were signing. Also, the differences in the drawings were due to variations in our ability to draw, according to Gill, who felt that there would have been some real room for criticism had all of the drawings been identical. In any case, the important things are there the general shape is there, the figures on top are there, and the shaft of light. That some of the observers did not sign the witness statement indicates that Gill wasn't the great white leader who had to be followed, Reverend Gill said. Gill also made it clear that the Papuans were well on their way to independence at that point and time in 1959, and they actually resented European authority. Yet none of the non-signatories reproached Gill later with doubts or differing accounts. What's more, if they were conditioned to miracles, which miracles had preceded all this? The miracles they would like to have seen? Most of them was for me to disappear off the face of the earth and let them get on with running their own district, Gill added. In keeping with his Mr. Magoo theorem, however, Donald H. Menzel further explained the waving as an optical illusion created by the out-of-focus images of the eyelashes and a diffraction resulting from squinting as a nearsighted person tries to improve his vision. Working sand and eye with the effects of irregularities, such as blood cells on the retina. Menzel concluded Since a very simple hypothesis accounts without any strain for the reported observations, I shall henceforth consider the Father Gill case as solved. Moreover, I feel the same phenomena are responsible for some of the more spectacular, unsolved cases in the Air Force files. Be reminded of all the drawings executed independently by the witnesses. Did everyone on the beach forget their glasses that night? If this guy sounds like a jackass, folks, it's because he is one of the most noted debunkers in history, a man who did all he could to destroy the reputation of anyone he thought may ever pose a danger to the company line on UFOs. The man was very intelligent and one of the first theoretical astronomers and astrophysicists in the U.S. He discovered the physical properties of the solar chromosphere, the chemistry of stars, the atmosphere of Mars, and the nature of gaseous nebulae. None of this, however, gives him carte blanche to be the singular authority on all subjects. Sadly, like so many men of science, his knowledge was superseded by his ego and faith in the omnipotence of earthly science, which, as we have seen many times, is far from infallible. Class, it should be noted, argued in favor of hoaxes more than almost any other UFO skeptic, but he rarely had any evidence to back up his accusations. In the 1970s, Class Heap preys on astronomer and UFO investigator Alan Hendry's The UFO Handbook, but Henry objected strongly to class's modus operandi, which Henry argued consisted of suppressing and distorting evidence, unscientific reasoning, attacks on opponent's character rather than by an answer to the contentions made, smear campaigns, scientific bait-and-switch tactics, and seemingly refusing to evaluate evidence that conflicted with his preconceptions. When the people on your own side of an argument do not agree with your methods, you probably rightly earn the debunker moniker. In February 1975, he called the editor of the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin, and in strong terms laced with sarcasm, he derided our publication of the article by J. Allen Hynek, The UFO Mystery. Class accused the FBI of perpetrating a hoax in the form of extraterrestrial UFOs and referred to Hynek as a fraud. The editor explained to Class that at no point did Hynek say that UFOs were extraterrestrial in origin and that UFOs present a unique problem for law enforcement as they are often the first people called when a UFO is spotted. The editor also defended Hynek as a widely respected scientist affiliated with a leading university, to which Klass replied, He won't be for long. As you can see, Klass was a polarizing figure and far from ethical in his approach to the subject. Most recently, there was an attempt at explaining the whole affair away by suggesting that Gill and the other witnesses were confused by a false horizon and that all they had been watching was a brightly lit squid boat and crew too busy to do more than just wave at the people on the shore. This idea is not tenable when one realizes that Gill was certain that the object he saw was at a 30-degree elevation in the sky. The Boy Nye visitations are enshrined in a classic piece of Australian fiction, novelist Randolph Stowe's 1979 book Visitants, which has the Boy Nye visitations as a backdrop to a striking story of confrontation and disintegration, emerging from Stowe's experience as a cadet patrol officer in Papua New Guinea. He was an assistant to the government anthropologist. His novel opens with this sentence On the 26th of June, 1959, at Boyanai in Papua, visitants appeared to the Reverend William Booth Gill, himself a visitant of 13 years standing, and to 37 witnesses of another color. The Boyanai visitants still stand as remarkable evidence for an impressive aerial anomaly and are regarded as some of the best entity reports on record. Until the day he died, William Gill still remained puzzled by what he saw and was pleased that an authority like Dr. Hynek had independently interviewed him and some of the other witnesses and traveled to the site. While he accepted that the sightings remain unexplained, he questioned the characterization of some attempts to explain the sightings as silly. He felt that these explanations were serious attempts to bring understanding to the events. I think that attitude encapsulates the integrity of Father Gill and the reality of the affair. Now, my friends, I will allow William Gill to tell you in his own words what he saw in the Melanesian skies in 1959.
1: One of the most credible witnesses we interviewed was an Australian minister, the Reverend William Gill, hosted before the time of his sighting to the Anglican Mission in Boynai, Papua New Guinea. One night at 7.45, as he stood with 38 other people at the edge of the mission playing field, every one of them saw the same thing. Can you imagine what it's like to look up in the sky and see a totally foreign-looking object? They're uh, just hovering, uh, not very high up, maybe two or 300 feet uh, up in the air, and glowing, and two uh, bipods, jutting out from behind it, from uh, underneath it, and sparkling all around, and some figures up there, this good-looking object, and figures walking about on top, and not the slightest noise whatsoever, and so we waved. Wouldn't it be wonderful? if we could get this object down onto the playing field and as we waved wondering whether we'd get some recognition and whether perhaps they would uh, understand what we wanted they waved back so i asked a boy to go quickly down bring the torch bring the pencil bring the paper and uh, return as quickly as he can so that i can get for any, any other events that occur minute by minute movements um, so that at least we'd be able to uh, to talk about it the next day, and this he did very very quickly. He brought it back. And he brought the, t- the torch and put the torch on and shone it to the the craft. And uh, as he did so, he waved the or uh, moved the torch uh, this way, and we were dumbfounded when we looked at the craft, and the craft was as though it was responding to the torch. Uh, It began to do this too. You know, like a a, a disc-shaped object just uh, moving the same way responding to the the, the movement of the torch. Next day, uh, just prior to the evening service, about 7 o'clock, the thing was there again. It had arrived uh, about an hour earlier. And um, we all decided to uh, have the normal... Even song that we uh, do have on uh, on those uh, nights uh, because, uh, well, the thing was out there outside the church anyway, and, and uh, we thought it wouldn't go away during the service, uh, and it didn't. Uh, when we came out, uh, there it was, still up in the sky. And so, for another hour or two, we watched, um, and then suddenly it did go, and uh, there was this amazingly incredible speed uh, that the whole craft disappeared uh, to nothing uh, across the bay uh, in a matter of a second or so well now what are we to think of this kind of phenomenon people claiming to see uh, things such as i did the 38 of us and we all believe that we saw it but of course we don't expect other people to believe us if we if they don't want to
0: so now, folks, you've heard from Father Gill himself, and what are we left with? Among the hypotheses later considered to explain Gill's sightings was that he was pulling Crutwell's leg. But if so, when Crutwell became excited and helped inform the world about the events, Gill might then have been expected to stay quiet and wait for the embarrassment to pass. Instead, Gill accepted invitations to speak widely about what he had seen with no apparent reluctance. Did the planets Jupiter? Saturn and Mars decide to get together and hover a few hundred feet in the air just off the coastline of the mission? I suppose that perhaps the crew members spotted, apparently working on their craft, were actually just tightrope walkers who had ran wires between these planets? As to the Venus connection, Gil knew where Venus was during these sightings and had even pointed it out separately to the unknown craft. What about the signaling with the torch and the corresponding movements of the craft? I don't know about you but I'm fairly confident if I go outside tonight and try to replicate this experiment, our celestial neighbors are unlikely to cooperate. What about a squid boat floating a few hundred feet in the air? No doubt the NZ Defense Force dusted that off 20 years later to help try and explain away the events on board the Argosy that I covered in the Kaikora Lights episode. Let's also address that 800-pound gorilla in the room. At this time, in most Commonwealth countries, the natives were openly called and treated as superstitious savages. So when Father Gill presented 38 signatures, only the one signed by a European descendant would have mattered to the RAAF. If you don't believe me, please remember that Aboriginal people in Australia could not even vote in a country. They have occupied for at least 60,000 years. Yes, folks, 60,000, not 6,000, until 1962. And it was not until 1984, that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples gained full equality with other electors under the Commonwealth Electoral Amendment Act of 1983. The events of New Guinea in 1959, at first glance, seem to be too unbelievable to be true. It is just too good of a sighting, compared to hazy photographs, reports of abductions by unreliable witnesses, and the designation of any unidentified light in the sky as a flying saucer. To be respectable, open-minded individuals, we must not compare one report to another. Each case must be viewed on its own merits. Many of the so-called explanations are by those who never interviewed Reverend Gill, never visited the site, never read Gill's actual reports, but relied on third-party explanations to draw their own conclusions. Dr. Hynek and his staff members actually interviewed Gill. They visited the site. They searched weather reports. They stood in the same spot that Gill stood. They interviewed other witnesses of the events. They followed up initial inquiries with subsequent visits and interviews, allowing the passage of time to shed its light on the witnesses and what they saw. Fourteen years after the fantastic events at Papua, Dr. Hynek revisited Papua New Guinea, Australia, and re-interviewed six of the initial witnesses. They all supported William Gill's initial reports, and still believe what they saw to be a real craft of some unknown origin. He found the descriptions remarkably consistent, just as it should be in a collective encounter with details that could not have matched unless there was an intense collective sighting over long periods. The Papua New Guinea sighting is one of the best documented cases of an unidentified craft of unknown origin in UFO Annals history. Well, my friends, I hope that you've enjoyed that case. It's truly a fascinating one. I hope I've added to your knowledge base tonight. And if you ever get a chance to catch up on anything to do with the Father Gill sighting, make sure you do, because it is an astounding case. And as always, my friends, I'll leave you with a quote from Art Bell, and that quote is, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out, however it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached.